Today, we welcome the king of metabolic flexibility, Mark Sisson. Foot health. I think foot health is the new sleep. Mm. You know, I think people have ignored foot health for so long. 78% of people cl- complain of foot problems in their lifetime. Half the people wow. have to get some form of accommodation, whether it's orthotics or surgery, bunion surgery or plantar fasciitis yeah. issues. And it doesn't have to be that way. Your foot should be as healthy as every other appendage and organ on your body. But we get so caught up in the fashion and trying to, you know, fit them into these you know, restrictive cases that don't allow the toes to move and articulate, cut off the blood flow. One of the more recent studies on plantar fasciitis suggests that when the big toe can't move out, can't abduct away from the foot and is always scrunched in, it cuts off the blood flow to the arch and that creates plantar fasciosis. So what they call plantar fasciitis, which is an inflammation, isn't really an isis, it's an osis, it's a death of tissue and it's caused by a lack of circulation. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp Podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I wanna thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, the host of the Keto Camp Podcast. And today I'm very excited to bring on a legend in the health and wellness space. This man is somebody I have admired and studied and looked up to for quite some time. And I can't believe we have posted over 600 episodes on the Keto Camp Podcast and we haven't had Mark Sisson on yet. And the cool thing about today's episode is that we did the episode in person at my Keto Camp podcast studio. Actually, it was the last in-person recording at the studio we recently moved from. And oh my gosh, what a conversation we had. Thankfully, Mark Sisson does not live too far from me. I'm in Miami. He's in South Beach. So he drove over. We hung out, recorded a fantastic conversation. And you are going to listen to that entire conversation today. We take a deep dive into the metabolism and some of the myths surrounding a healthy metabolism, how the thought process of, I want to just speed up my metabolism, I want a faster metabolism, why that's actually not a good thing and actually ages you faster and you might live a uh, shorter lifespan with more inflammation. There's actually something more important than a faster metabolism, and that's going to be an efficient metabolism. You see, the metabolism doesn't work in speeds necessarily. It's efficient or inefficient. So somebody who has an efficient metabolism is somebody who is metabolically flexible. And Mark is going to explain it in the best way you could ever hear it, what exactly that means. We talk about studies that reference 
the majority of American adults, about 93% of American adults are metabolically inflexible, the reasons why. We take a deep dive into ketones and ketosis and some of the myths surrounding ketosis, how ketones are amazing for the brain, amazing for the metabolism. The way that Mark teaches it is to reset the metabolism. I say most people are in a keto deficiency. They really need this metabolic tool. So we do take a deep dive into the love of keto. We talk about some of the pitfalls of keto as well, like doing it for too long and too aggressively. Me and Mark are on the same page looking at keto as a metabolic tool that we go in and out of, not necessarily sustained ketosis. And then we get into some other topics, including walking. Uh, Mark is actually writing a brand new book all about the benefits of walking. He prefers walking over running. I agree with him. And the benefits are incredible, way more than you would ever imagine. And he talks about some of those benefits, but his book will talk about the majority of those benefits. He fell in love with the principle of walking every day. So after we, he talks about the benefits of walking, he has actually launched a brand new company called Paluva. And Paluva has these incredibly looking footwear, these shoes that are not your typical shoes. They are uh, lightweight, minimalist trainers for natural movement in the modern world. If you end up watching the YouTube interview, the video interview of today's interview with Mark, you could see we actually show the, the shoes on the camera, but you can look it up as well. We have a link down below to check out the shoes and the benefits of those shoes. I just got myself two pairs of them. So you'll see me rocking them on my Instagram stories and maybe even on stage because there's some professional looking ones as well. I love the idea of these, uh, these shoes. There's also a coupon code for you to use and get a discount as well from Paluva Shoes. So we'll put that link and coupon code down below in the podcast notes. And we have a lot more that we covered today. You're going to love Mark. Uh, I know you already love him and you'll love him even more after today's conversation. Hey, before I bring him on, I want to get to today's Apple podcast rating and review of the day. Here is a five-star review from Grateful for Today titled Bravo. Where do I start? Ben Azadi and his team are one of a kind. I thoroughly enjoy listening to upgraded ideas and findings related to health, mind, and body. I appreciate how Ben is honest about his life and health journey and how it ebbs and flows as new discoveries come about. His ability to interview is phenomenal. Keep up the great work. Wow. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. And I'm also grateful for today and I'm grateful for you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for acknowledging the team. We do have an incredible team who makes sure these episodes get done and published. We have Ian, our amazing podcast engineer. We have Robert, our show notes. We have Cameron, our YouTube uh, video editor. Uh, we have Ada, our YouTube publisher. Uh, I mean, we, and we have Andrea, my assistant. We have a whole incredible team. So acknowledging them is amazing. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast and leaving that rating and review. If you have not left the Keto Camp podcast a rating or a review yet, please do so. On whatever platform you're listening from, maybe I'll listen to your, I'll read your review on the next episode. All right, ready to have some fun with the goat of metabolic flexibility, Mark Sisson? Let's do it. Mark Sisson is a health and fitness expert. He's a New York Times bestselling author of The Keto Reset Diet, the founding father of the ancestral health movement, his blog, marksdailyapple.com, and Primal Blueprint Lifestyle Program has paved the way for primal enthusiasts to challenge conventional wisdoms, diet and exercise principles, and take personal responsibility for their health and well-being. 
From its humble and controversial beginnings in 2006, Mark's Daily Apple has grown into one of the highest-ranked health information resources on the internet with some 3 million unique visitors each month. An entrepreneur presiding over a wide-ranging Primal Enterprise, his company Primal Kitchen, which we're all grateful for, has healthy condiments, and it was sold to Kraft Heinz in 2008. Mark is 70 years old. He looks incredible. He has a bachelor's in biology. He has done incredible feats of activity, and he's my neighbor. Here's Mark Sisson. Mark Sisson, thank you so much for coming on the Keto Camp Podcast in person. Welcome, my friend. It's great to be here, Ben. Thanks for having me. You're not too far away, although traffic might be (laughs) an issue, but uh, you made the drive up here from South Beach. And I was just telling you, we're 670 plus episodes in on the podcast, and I can't believe this is the first time you've been on. I've been such a huge admirer of your work. I have two of your books here and your other books back there. The OG of metabolic flexibility, and I actually want to start there. Um, Studies show 88%, 93% of American adults are metabolically inflexible, Right. sugar burners, right? Right. And uh, Harvard is predicting that by the year 2030, about half of the population will be obese. Right. So they're essentially metabolically inflexible, or in other words, in a keto deficiency, they could really use keto. So why do you think we have such a high percentage of metabolically inflexible humans in uh, in the United States? Well, I mean, I would say it goes back to the origin of breakfast and the and cereals and breads and, uh, you know, a grain-based diet and the U.S. Department of Agriculture recommending that we get six to 11 servings of grains every day, the prevalence of sugar having crept up linearly until it was almost exponential for the past few decades. We become a carb-based society. And when you eat nothing but carbs or when you eat predominantly carbs, your body never gets a signal that it has to burn fat for energy. So all you do is go through life storing fat. You go through life typically with high levels of uh, circulating insulin as a result of the amount of uh, carbohydrates in your diet. The insulin locks the fat in the fat cells. The brain goes, where's my glucose? I don't know how to burn ketones. And uh, you know, ultimately the cycle repeats itself. When you eat again, you eat more carbs again, you raise the blood sugar, you increase the insulin, and it becomes this vicious cycle that people are locked in, some people for their entire lives. And uh, without the knowledge, without the understanding of how the body works and how easy it is to reverse that cycle and start tapping in your fat stores, start training your body to build a metabolic machinery to burn fats, to utilize ketones freely, uh, to not have your nervous system go into shock in the absence of glucose and and start to secrete uh, cortisol and other relatively destructive hormones in that regard. It's a pretty easy uh, concept, and yet the execution is is <laughs> the most difficult part. And that's where you you ask why are you know why are we so you know metabolically inflexible? And I would say it's just the prevalence of processed, sugary uh, foods around us that um, you know is is beckoning us everywhere we go. Mm, yeah. It's, it's interesting because when we look at the 1970s and you've seen photos of the beaches in 1970s versus... I was fo- on the beaches in the 1970s. Yeah, you were on the beaches. Yeah, yeah. Mark was there looking ripped like <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do today yeah, yeah. at the age 70 years old right yeah, now, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, but if we compare the photos in the 70s versus now, completely different image. We, yeah. we see people that are overweight and obese. Uh, and keto is a big tool in that. It's not the only tool, right? Yeah. Metabolic flexibility is the goal. But I'd love for you to share a little bit about why you started to fall in love with keto. And then we'll talk about some of the drawbacks of keto as well. Yeah. Well, you know, I started 
a long time ago, just looking at human performance and how diet was a critical aspect of achieving uh, not just a good body composition, ideal body composition, but also enhancing sports performance and things like that. So as a former athlete, I looked at dietary uh, manipulation as a way to improve my performance. Uh, as I retired from sports and I started thinking more about just a general lifestyle and what it would take for me to retain my strength and my fitness without so much pain and suffering and sacrifice uh, for the rest of my years, I realized that so much of the body composition that we talk about, so much of the energy that I want to have access to comes from uh, food choices and the way we can intervene in the body's hormone cycle to cause certain things to happen that we want to happen, like building muscle and burning fat, and prevent other things from happening, like storing fat, um, becoming inflamed. And all of this is, is kind of a based on, on uh, epigenetics and, and the signals that we give our body. Certainly food is fuel, but within that fuel, there are signals, uh, and there are certain things that the body does in response to the intake of those fuels. So I started looking at evolutionary biology as the sort of premise. I was always interested in evolution as a student, uh, as a pre-med student in, in college. And then modern genetic science was just starting to come on the scene. You started to understand in the 70s and 80s and certainly in the 90s that everything that happens to us happens at a level of gene expression. So whenever there's a study done now, for sure, it looks at what genes are turned on and what genes are suppressed. And that really only emerged in the, in the 70s and 80s. Before that, it was like maybe thought to be, a, it was a theory, but it wasn't, it wasn't proven. Now we have the, the means to prove that when you do an experiment and you show that certain genes are turned on, you go, okay, that's pretty cool. Now I've found this hidden genetic switch that I can manipulate. So as I got looking at the evolutionary um, signals, the models from evolution, it became clear to me that, that we evolved over two and a half million years, some say three million years as humans, in this crucible of uh, scarcity, harsh conditions, certain types of food. And the genetic recipe that we have today reflects those millions of years of evolution. And so if we can figure out ways in which to turn on those genes that build muscle and burn fat and turn off certain other harmful genes, which aren't necessarily harmful. They're just like the genes that cause inflammation aren't bad genes. They're just responding to a signal where they, the body thinks you're in an inflamed right. state. You're under attack, attack from something. So I created a program called the Primal Blueprint, which is my first real synthesis of all these things that I learned in my studies. And the Primal Blueprint describe these 10 primal blueprint laws, which are pretty basic human behavioral laws. Eat lots of plants and animals, move around a lot at a low level of, of heroic activity, get lots of play, get lots of sleep, sun exposure, uh, lift weights uh, a couple of times a week, sprint once in a while. And, and that formed the template for a, um, a pretty cool uh, way of, of living and looking at, at ways in which anybody could access better health if they were to tap into these hidden genetic switches. Four, five, or six, or eight years after I wrote the book, I'm like, this is amazing. I feel great. Um, I'm onto something. I did a, uh, a cart, what I call the carbohydrate curve years ago. I don't know if you've seen it, but many people have now copied it and, it and it showed, you know, different levels of carbohydrate intake and what happens as a result of that, you know, in general. I lived according to the primal blueprint for, again, for five or six years. I was getting great results, but, and I'm a researcher and I'm always 
looking at ways to improve performance. And I started delving into ketogenic diets. And I thought, well, this is this is next level paleo. This is next level primal stuff. What year was that? Uh, this goes back to 2008 or wow, nine. Way before for, way, most people knew anything yeah, about yeah. keto. And, and it became a, you know, it was a thought process for me for a while. And then I started really looking at the research and I started, you know, Finney and Volick uh, came on the scene and started really writing in depth stuff about how the assumption about a ketogenic diet that the medical profession had had for the past several decades was was erroneous and detrimental to the movement. Yeah. Ketoacidosis. Uh, oh, you stay away from anything ketones because you'll get yeah. ketoacidosis and you'll die. You know that the same video from Mayo Clinic, well, a video from Mayo yeah. Clinic is the first video that shows up on YouTube when you search keto about yeah. ketoacidosis. Yeah. That's just crazy. <laughs> so I started down my keto path fully understanding that this was a tool, that it wasn't something that I wanted to engage in for the rest of my life. And I know a lot of people who are keto, you know, they would claim to be keto all the time. I'm not. Um, Me neither. I, I wrote a book called The Keto Reset Diet, which described the way in which we could use a ketogenic diet to achieve metabolic flexibility, reset the metabolism so that it would be, we would be, be better at, at accessing body fat for, for energy or accessing ketones in the brain in the absence of glucose. And this metabolic flexibility has become kind of the, I rethought the whole way of eating concept that most people have. Like people would say, well, you know, low carb is the way to go. People say low fat's the way to go. People say vegan is the way to go. Carnivore is the way to go. So at the end of the day, none of that matters. All that matters is can you access stored body fat and can you burn ketones in the absence of glucose? That's metabolic flexibility. So how you get there is irrelevant to me. You can get there through uh, various means, which include uh, certain cycles of training uh, layered onto certain cycles of eating and not eating. And then fasting, within, yeah. Within that, yeah, long-term fasting. So the, but at the end of the road, which I call the holy grail, is this metabolic flexibility. So for me, it was a revelation to understand that while ketogenic diets and being keto is a cool thing to do, and I, I have friends that, that are keto, they've been keto for 10 years. God bless them. I just, I like to eat other things too much. And I wanted to retain my, um, not just my ability to have expand my palate, but also to uh, be flexible in my lifestyle enough that I wasn't that guy who, you know, can't eat at that restaurant because of this or whatever. So the metabolic flexibility thing is, I think it's taken off. Rob Wolf and I sort of started talking about this term initially 10 years ago, maybe even more, maybe 15 years ago. And it's now sort of entered the, the lexicon, if you will. Yeah, it is the holy grail. Yeah. Uh, and you guys do a really good job educating people on why this is very important. If only burning sugar and being a sugar burner is a form of in, uh, metabolic inflexibility, wouldn't another form of metabolic inflexibility be only burning fat and ketones, like we see with those who are strict keto long-term? You know, you could argue that. On the other hand, we don't lose our ability to burn sugar. Sugar doesn't require some manipulation of the mitochondria to get to that point. I don't know whether this goes back hundreds of millions of years in our evolution, but we, we don't really lose the ability to burn sugar or glucose in this case. We may lose the, um, the sensitivity, mm -hmm. and so we may have issues when we eat it. We may have insulin issues, but I don't think it's as bad as, you know, just being a sugar burner and just depending on carbs your whole life and never 
burning off your stored fat and accumulating, you know, two, three, four, five pounds a year, every year for decades until you're, you know, 280 pounds. That's just sort of not how we were designed. Agreed that burning sugar and not fat is more detrimental than just burning fat and not sugar glucose. But I do see a lot of people in my space who are very dogmatic about keto. Yeah. And I used to be when I first got into keto in 2014, Mark, yeah. very dogmatic. At this time, I owned a CrossFit gym here in Miami, actually. Okay, yeah. And I was teaching all my CrossFit students about keto and fasting. They did not want to hear that message. Yeah. Did you teach about rhabdo at the same time? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did talk about <laughs> rhabdo. But I was very dogmatic. And I soon realized that it's really more about flexibility and sustainability, what yeah. you teach about, what you teach. Yeah. But not only with myself, I've seen so many people just push, do keto harder or do carnivore harder yeah. to the detriment of their health, where now they have thyroid conditions, they're losing their hair, weight loss uh, stalls or weight gain. So I see it become, become an issue when we become too dogmatic and just put ourselves in this box. And yeah. this is coming from keto camp, right? Somebody who yeah. loves keto. So what are your thoughts on, I know you, we have friends who do it and they're successful, but for most people, do you think being in a continuous state? No, I, no, I don't. I mean, as I said, I, I think keto is a great tool to reset your metabolism. And when I say a tool to reset your metabolism, even that would be like a strategic three to six week program if you're really out of whack, if you're really out of sorts. Why three to six weeks? Is that because you want to get them keto adapted and that's yeah. where you think the time frame that's, I think occurs? the time frame is there. I think, that, I, I think it optimizes around six weeks. So what I've always said is the, like you take athletes who, who start with, adopt a ketogenic way of training and a ketogenic way of, of, um, of dieting, within six weeks, they get 80% of the results they're, all, they're ever going to get. But it might take two years to get the next 20% to the point where a, a lot of athletes avoided a ketogenic training program because they were unwilling to fall back a little bit for this season on the hopes that in two seasons, they'll be 10% better, Right. It's a curve in which the first, the, the results happen in general with most people who are going to respond well to a ketogenic diet within three to six weeks. And then I would say, okay, then do your blood work and, you know, check everything and then start to reintroduce a little bit more carbs. Not a lot more. I mean, no, I, you know, I've said for a long time, nobody needs more than 150 grams of carbs a day. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, if you're a top competitive athlete and you're grinding it out and there, that's an exception, that's, that's an exception, but most most reasonably healthy, reasonably fit individuals, myself included, don't need more than 150 grams of, of carbs a day. I mean, I can eat 300 grams of carbs a day, but I don't need more than 150 because that's really all it takes to refill the glycogen stores, which is really all you're doing with carbohydrates. If you're, if you're metabolically flexible throughout the day, you're still deriving 95% of your energy for every activity you do from stored body fat or from the fat that you're eating in your, in your meals. That's then, an important thing you just said there. I mean, if you could elaborate on that, like you get your calories from the plate of food, as you mentioned, yeah, yeah. or from your body fat. Yeah. So, so as a, you know, as a keto adapted, metabolically flexible person, every time you choose not to eat, you, you kind of go, this is kind of cool. Cause I, I know it's going to take me 500 calories to get to the next, through the next six hours. And it's all coming from me. It's all mm -hmm. coming from my stored body fat, which is, you know, I want that throughput. I want to be, I want to be rotating that stock of, of fat. I don't want to be just accumulating it and never tapping into it. I want it to rotate in and out of the fat cells. I think there's a certain amount of health and, and, uh, detoxing involved in that process as well. Um, but the, the 150 grams a day, it's just, again, it seems to be a pretty standard, um, kind of set point for a lot of people. So you use keto to get, to, to reset your 
metabolism, then you maintain that flexibility for as long as you want. It's easier if you work out a lot. It's even easier if you vary your workouts between long, slow distance, some tempo work, some weight training, some speed work, which is what my um, routine is now. So I feel like I've combined the best elements of my diet, which is not carb-free. I guess on a day-to-day basis, you could say it looks ketogenic, but some days it's not. So some days it's some days it just doesn't have fat. I wouldn't even call it a ketogenic diet. I just say, I mean, excuse me, it doesn't have carbs. Some days it doesn't have carbs. I wouldn't even think to say, oh, today I was keto. Some days it has carbs. Mm. Because I'm metabolically flexible, I'm in and out, it doesn't matter. My body, the metabolic flexibility describes your body's ability to extract energy from whatever substrate it needs for the job at hand. So if it's a low level uh, activity, you're burning fat. So you can drive energy from the fat stored in your body, from the fat stored in your muscles, from the fat on your plate of food, from the glycogen stored in your muscles, from the glucose in your bloodstream, from the ketones that your liver makes in the absence of glucose. All of these are substrates that if you're metabolically flexible, the body can tap into without even... you noticing it, or without even having to think about what do I, what do I do to without having to count cal- calories yeah. and log that's your food the definition in. of metabolic flexibility. Yeah. So, to get there, ideally, uh, you do some uh, manipulation of the diet to encourage the body to tap into stores. You literally have to either withhold uh, carbohydrate or withhold glucose or withhold food in general, and and the body upregulates those enzyme systems and those um, you know genetic sequences that build metabolic machinery, you you increase the number of mitochondria you have. It's called mitochondrial biogenesis. Those mitochondria don't go away when you when you go out of keto. Right. As long as you use them, as long as you are doing some amount of lifting weights, some amount of high intensity activity, some amount of long distance movement that isn't even making you sweat, but is still movement, um, some amount of sprinting. So that arena, that sphere that you arrive at of metabolic flexibility includes some amount of Diet swings one way or the other. It doesn't matter. You don't lose your keto card. You don't, you know, you don't <laughs> get kicked out of metabolic flexibility camp yeah. because you messed up a couple of times. Sometimes, you know, there are people who who will um, you know, go way off the wagon a day or two and then go, I just means I just gotta go to the track and do some sprints because mm-hmm. I'll burn off that I stored extra glycogen, I'll burn it off. That'll be the end of that. I'll go back to, you know, my my flexible pathways. And these people don't suffer from the malaise that gets described so often in, I mean, our former uh, colleague, Jimmy, low-carb Jimmy, you know, used to talk about being kicked out of keto when he ate more than 80 grams of carbs a day. Well, I guess that's fine. Kicked out of keto means he felt like crap and he, he, you know, he he had headaches and whatever. He wasn't metabolically flexible. He was just a guy who learned how to live on 4,500 calories a day were the fat and a little bit of protein. Yeah, correct. It didn't mean it was healthy. It didn't mean it was the right thing to do. It didn't mean that it was a, uh, you know, uh, a model, a way of, of orchestrating a diet or a lifestyle. It just meant that he wasn't, he wasn't living to the fullest extent. He wasn't creating any sort of metabolic flexibility, even though he was the, one of the leaders in the keto movement for a long time. He was, yeah. And got into trouble, unfortunately. Yeah. Hey, when was the last time you bit into a juicy burger or a perfectly cooked steak and thought to yourself, this is the best thing I've ever tasted? If it's been a while, it's probably because most meat products 
are conventionally raised, which not only affects the flavor profile, but significantly diminishes the beneficial nutrients and minerals. And believe it or not, even products that are labeled as grass-fed or ethically raised to make you think they're high quality are often finished on grain or in factory farms, which is why I am so excited to share something with you today that will not only help you avoid the hormones, antibiotics, and pesticide residues that diminish the taste of conventionally raised meat, but could also save you nearly $1,000 over the next year on your grocery bill. And the best part? This may be the best tasting thing you've had in a long time. So what the heck am I talking about? I'm talking about Wild Pastures Meat Delivery. They provide the highest quality meats from small, regenerative, family-run farms here in the United States that prioritize sustainability and animal welfare. Their beef is 100% grass-fed. Their pork and poultry are pasture-raised, something you won't find anywhere in the grocery store, resulting in meats that are not only healthier for you, but also better for the environment. One of the reasons why me and my fiance Natasha loves wild pastures is that we can opt out out of supporting harmful conventional farming practices and instead support small family-run farms without spending a fortune. And the convenience doesn't stop there. They offer delivery straight to your door so you can enjoy delicious, high-quality meats without even leaving your house. No matter where you are in the lower 48 states, Wild Pastures has got you covered. Not only is this the most convenient way to get your meat products, but Wild Pasture meats are better for you nutritionally, and they're higher in the total nutrients, phytonutrients, antioxidants, key fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, proteins, and amino acids. And today, for keto campers, for a limited time, you can get 20% off every box plus free shipping for life and $15 off your first box. This is a crazy deal, and I hope you take advantage of it. So make the switch to Wild Pastures today and save nearly $1,000 on your grocery bill while feeling healthier and enjoying the best-tasting meats of your life. All you need to do is go to the link in the podcast notes down below. Everything is already applied. All you got to do is click that link, customize your order, and you'll have some delicious, healthy-tasting meats very soon. Head to the podcast notes down below, click the link, enjoy your wild pastures. Okay, let's get right back to this episode. Metabolic flexibility is metabolic freedom. Yeah, uh, the, ability, the ability to do what you want to do and not let food impact you, not let food control you. I'm sure like when I travel and I know airplane food is toxic, air, airport food is toxic, then I know I'm just going to let my body do its thing and feed yeah. off my body fat. 12 hours, 18 hours, no, 24 hours. No, use it as an opportunity, not a, not Correct. a sacrifice. Yeah, no, that's what yeah. I mean. Yeah, yeah. So, but I know my body's going to do its thing. I'm going to feel great. So yeah. I'm always fasted when I travel, right? This is freedom. And this is different. What you're talking about, about the metabolism, using different substrates, achieving metabolic flexibility, this is very different than what most people think they need with their metabolism, which is I want a fast metabolism. Yeah. Could you explain why that's not the goal? Yeah. So um, one of the things that comes with metabolic flexibility is metabolic efficiency. So you become much more efficient at extracting these, this energy from these uh, substrates. Now, it becomes even more efficient if your gut biome is in good condition and you're not you know, crapping out half your food because you can't digest it, which which happens to a lot of people. So a lot of people who, you know, consume 4,200 calories a day, but they really only absorb half of it because of bad digestion or, or poor gut microbiome. 
But metabolic efficiency um, is really, uh, again, it's it was thanks to evolution and thanks to what happened um, as a result of our developing as humans throughout a harsh environment with lots of scarcity, we have this system that is very good at, at storing excess calories as fuel on the body. And if you think about how that makes sense in the context of, of uh, survival and evolution, you know, you're, you're, we, don't, we didn't have three meals a day when we were scrounging around as, you know, early hominids. When we came across food, we scarfed it down mm-hmm. uh, and the body set up a mechanism to store the excess calories, more, the, the calories over and above what we needed at the time to be stored on the body in very convenient locations, by the way, right above the center of gravity. So instead of fat being stored, you know, on the top behind the neck uh, or on the arms or whatever, it's, it starts at the at the belly and the hips and the thighs and the butt um, because that's the center of gravity. So we had this really elegant, convenient way of, of storing excess calories as fuel that we carried around with us everywhere we went. We also had the ability to tap into that, that fuel. And I would say seamlessly, again, without being annoyed or pissed off or hangry yeah. that there was no food around, the body just knew how to tap into the fat stores, combust that for energy, uh, create ketones so the brain would thrive in the absence of, of food. And so that sort of efficiency set up another uh, layer of efficiency, which included the preservation of the sparing, if you will, of amino acids that already circulate in the body. So one of the things that happens in the absence of of, uh, food, and if you're keto adapted, it doesn't happen if you're a sugar burner, but if Mm. you're keto adapted, if you're metabolically flexible, uh, is that when you go with, when you don't eat, uh, the body doesn't lose muscle. It doesn't cannibalize muscle tissue. Uh, taking a step back, if you're a sugar burner and you and you haven't built the metabolic machinery to burn fat, your body only knows how to burn carbohydrates. Your brain only really is used to burning glucose. When you deprive the body and the brain of those fuel sources, the brain goes, where the hell's my glucose? Like, this is horrible. And it sends signals to the adrenals to secrete cortisol. Cortisol goes throughout the body to strip the muscles of a few amino acids that it sends to the liver to make glucose so the brain will be happy. So it's it's catabolic in that regard. This doesn't happen when you're metabolically flexible because when your brain knows how to use ketones, when your body and the muscles, when you built the metabolic machinery and, you, and your body knows how to uh, access stored body fat, combust the body fat under almost all circumstances, literally up to about 95% VO2 max, if you're really good at this, then it, 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 then the brain doesn't get that, that signal and, and, and doesn't uh, get secrete the cortisol. And one of the things that happens is there's an upregulation of a protein sparing system. So amino acids that you would otherwise be sending to turn into glucose or pissing out, deaminating and, and, and urinating out, those get recirculated. And so there's this, it becomes a closed loop almost when you don't eat and, and your body's burning the stored body fat. Some of the fat's going to liver to create ketones. The ketones are fueling the brain. You, you don't cannibalize the muscle tissue because this uh, protein sparing effect is taking place. And then at a deeper level, at the cellular level, the cells are now engaging in a thing called autophagy, where they start to use, consume and combust damaged proteins, damaged fats. They do a little house cleaning and, they, and, and in doing the house cleaning, they, they eat the remnants that they've cleaned up mm. and use that for fuel. So it becomes a very efficient system that not only 
indicates to most people, and I was surprised at this, that you don't need as much food as you think you do. And number two becomes sort of an anti-aging strategy with this autophagy aspect. That's why a lot of people uh, engage in multi-day fasts to seek that autophagy. The idea about quantity of food and how efficient we are, if you really... If you really delve into this and you and you see how efficient the human body is, I would say that if I was describing a, a diet for somebody and I, I said, well, if we only cover the bases that you need, like I know you can eat 4,000 calories a day and not, and not get fat. Lucky you. You must have a fast metabolism. Mm-hmm. But really all you need is 120 grams of protein every day. Maybe it's 140. It's never much more than that unless you're a bodybuilder. It might be as low as 100, but let's say it's say 100, 120, let's call it 150, 150 grams of protein a day. That's only 600 calories. Mm-hmm. And if you're limiting your carbs to vegetables and fruits, you're under 150 there. So that's another 600. We're only at 1,200 calories. Mm-hmm. So the re- you're going to make the rest up with fat. Well, there's a point at which fat is too much anyway. You, like more than 100 grams of fat a day. I mean, I could, I could consume 200 grams of fat a day. Um, but 200 grams of fat a day is 1,800 calories. We're still only at 3,000 calories, right? And if I'm only doing 100 grams of calories a day, uh, 100 grams of fat a day, that's 900 plus 1,200. That's 2,100 calories. That's all I need to to thrive in a day. So how is it I could eat 4,000 calories when I was younger or 6,000 when I was an athlete? Well, I could because I had a fast metabolism. So now we get back to this philosophical question. And I see people at the gym all the time and they're on the treadmill every day and, or they're on the elliptical groaning and grunting <laughs> yeah. and, you know, well, yeah, I burned 600 calories right. on the elliptical today or 700 yeah. on the... I'm like, okay, and fine. And what are you doing with that? Are you racing? Well, I'm not, I'm not, I don't race. I don't run. What are you doing? Well, I just like to eat. I'm like, dude, wait a minute. <laughs> you are going to the gym and you are sweating through that every single day. So you can have a few more bites of something you probably shouldn't have had in the first place. Like, do you see how insane that is to to try and build a fast metabolism? In the world of, in the animal kingdom, uh, fast metabolism is an indicator of early death. Yeah, right. So it's the animals with the slow metabolisms that live the longest. Slow and efficient. Slow and efficient. So, you know, if you, you know, if you want to be a, a Lamborghini revving at 7,500 RPMs in neutral at a stoplight and burning the engine out after a couple of, uh, a year or two of doing that, go for it. But- but, you know, if you'd rather, like, live your life in a manner which allows you to have all the energy you want at any one point in time, but doesn't force you to do extra work just to deserve extra calories. And in most cases, people who overeat, and I used to be one, they get uncomfortable from overeating, you know, from eating too much at night and then, you know, having uh, the heart race start racing and the mm-hmm. insulin going up and that's keeping you awake and 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 uh, all of the the stuff that goes along with it. So I would say... You know, I, th- I think most people philosophically would say, Ben, I, I love to eat. And I'm, my whole life is kind of, I want to I be in that good weight range. So I have to figure out what's the most amount of food I can eat and not gain weight. <laughs> so stupid. Like, like, what's the most amount of this meal I can eat and not be uncomfortable and not, not gain weight? What's the most amount of this dessert I can have and not feel like a glutton? And for a lot of people, it's, you know, who can get away with it. Um, it doesn't mean that there's not uh, some amount of um, of metabolic harm going on inside as a result of, say, the body revving at a higher 
temperature all day long, trying mm-hmm. to get the thermogenic effect of food, trying to burn off burn off the excess calories rather than store them, which which happens to a lot of people. So years ago, I came up with this thought experiment. I said, well, rather than trying to figure out what's the most amount of food I can eat and not gain weight, how about if I figure out what's the least amount of food I can eat, have all the energy I want, maintain muscle mass or even build muscle mass, never get sick, and most importantly, not be hungry. Because the hunger part of this is what rips everything apart. Yeah. If I could tighter my my daily intake down to a, a number that is the 150 grams of, of protein, the 150 grams total of, of leafy green vegetables and starchy tubers and fruits, and then some amount of fat, if I can, if I can tighter that down, what's the, what's the minimum effective dose of food I need to thrive and not be hungry? And that, again, is the key, and not be hungry. And you only get there through developing metabolic flexibility. You only mm-hmm. get there when you get to the point where, like, oh, my God, it's uh, it's 3.30 and I haven't eaten today. Oh, that's okay, whatever. Yeah. You know, I'll have dinner. It, you know, it's freedom. It's it's absolute freedom. And, and it's freedom also from, once you get there, it's freedom from not just uh, freedom from hunger and being tethered to uh, appetite and cravings and all of the other negative stuff. It's also freedom from the fear that you're going to cannibalize your own body tissue and lose all your muscle mass. Once you understand how this works, it is so empowering. Well said. I have a question regarding fat adaptation versus keto adaptation. I've been looking for studies that show this is the time frame for keto adaptation. And I haven't really found, I mean, I found things that show six weeks, like you mentioned, yeah. 45 days, 60 days, or, or some long or some shorter. But how do we test? I mean, the, what I use with my students, I want to get your input on this. When I feel like they're, they've made that shift is when their level of benefits kind of hit a, a new level. So they tell me, oh my gosh, my brain now is just so mentally sharp. I'm 45 days in. That to me is signaling that now they're more keto adapted. But how do we gauge that? How do we test that? I mean, I would say that's that might be the best strategy. I'm not a wearables guy. I'm not a, I'm the anti-quantified self. So I base everything on how do you feel? And I think how you feel in that context, how your brain feels is a critical component of, of the recognizing that you're becoming keto adapted. Especially if your brain is, if, if your mental clarity has improved in the absence of any food mm-hmm. for any length of time, um, that's always a good sign. Um, but you know what's, what's funny about this? Um, people brag about being in ketosis. And, uh, you know, ketosis is, it's, it's an osis. It's not a good thing, right? So it's a stress. It's a stress. So when you're in ketosis, for the longest time, this, the ketogenic uh, crowd, the early adopters, um, the early fanatics would brag about being, you know, five millimolar, six millimolar. And meanwhile, my guys who have been keto for 10 years, like much lower levels, I'm 0.5, yeah. 0.6. And you would say, well, how could that possibly be? Well, I'll tell you how it can be. When you are fully metabolically flexible and keto adapted, which I still would rather talk about metabolic flexibility, keto adaptation is just part of that. The muscles don't use ketones. So taking a step back, let's say you're not keto adapted and you skip three meals. You go on a uh, some pilgrimage and you decide not to eat, you're a sugar burner and you decide not to eat. 
you throw off huge amounts of ketones. And when I say throw them off, they're in the bloodstream, you piss them out, they're in your breath, everybody knows you haven't eaten. It's pretty obvious. Yeah. Okay, so that's ketosis. Now, it's not a bad thing, it's not ketoacidosis, but it's ketosis and you can measure it. Uh, and it's an indication that your body is producing ketones from fat in the absence of glucose, but it isn't necessarily a measure of a healthy metabolism. For the longest time, people would, on a daily basis, track their ketones and brag about being, you know, five or six millimolar. And so the muscles don't use ketones if you're fat adapted. If you're fat adapted, the, 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 basically the muscles go, save the ketones for the brain, pal. Mm -hmm. We don't need them. Early on, when you start into this whole thing, the muscles will use the ketones and because you're not really fat adapted yet. And so there's this transition period where the muscles are using ketones because there's no glucose or there's not enough. Um, and the brain is still able to work because of the ketones. It's starting to build a metabolic machinery to, to burn the ketones. But the muscles are like, nah, we got this handle. Like we become truly metabolically flexible. Again, we have all the energy source we need, right? Stored in our muscles and certainly subcutaneously in terms of fat. So the brain is the primary user of ketones when you are truly keto adapted. The brain is really the only thing using ketones. Now the it brain- It could use up to 70%, right? Yes. Um, and that's just, it may be more, it may be more. But so now you think the brain, the brain uses all the ketones and what is the brain's uh, energy requirements throughout the day? 500 calories. You know, it's it's maybe 600 calories. It's it's a uh, it's about what 20% of the 20% of your energy requirement requirement for the day. So it's about 25, call it 20 to 25 calories per hour. But the brain does not function the same way muscles. The brain just is steady state. So you go to the gym and you do a heavy leg day, and your leg muscles are using 30 to 50 times as much energy for that work while you're doing that work than they would at rest, okay? So that's that's uh, high intensity stuff. There's a lot of caloric throughput. There's a lot of stuff going on. Meanwhile, the brain is controlling all this mm. at the same, same level of output, 20 to 25 calories per hour. So when you think about the liver, which is generating these ketones and how much work the liver has to do to produce enough ketones for the brain, it's not much. So the liver goes, you know, I don't need to overproduce ketones. What a waste, what an evolutionary waste of, of, of energy and resources that is for me to produce ketones and spill them out in the urine or the breath or the sweat. So the liver says, you know, just, we'll just create this 0.5 millimolar, mm -hmm. always have this accessible level of ketones in the bloodstream. The brain can be happy whether it's doing a leg day, taking a nap or playing a, a chess master. And there was this thing for a while about how the, you know, chess masters burned 6,800 calories during I the, remember that. You know, and I had a thing with Rogan on this because Rogan called me out on it. He, Rogan said, well, I told him about this thing. And Rogan goes, don't, wait a minute, don't chess masters burn like 6,800 <laughs> calories, you know, in a, in a match? And I'm like, yeah, they do. Pacing around the room and doing uh. the brain. The brain is still only using a, a very limited and tighter amount of, of energy to, to, to control all that. That makes sense. The brain is uh, cool, calm, and collected. Yes. So the goal is not to chase ketones. That is the point. It's not to chase ketones. It's not to develop a fast metabolism. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it's to develop metabolic flexibility, metabolic efficiency, and then to build that metabolic machinery to be able to access ketones in the brain easily and, and make the transition from glucose to, to ketones from one day to the next without you having to get, again, this sensation that you were kicked out of keto. and Right. Those are the guys who are bragging about the six millimolar, seven millimolar, look at me, I'm peeing purple. I mean, you know, it's yeah. like strips, not the actual color of the pee. But yeah, right, correct. Yeah. And you know, those urine strips are only accurate when you're actually not keto adapted because once you are, it won't even spill out. The, and that's my point. acetate won't spill out. And that's my point because that then you're metabolically efficient. Correct. Now, you're, your, now your cells are just using it, sucking those. Your cells ketones. are using it and it's, and it's, again, it's really just your brain cells are using So the liver isn't even overproducing. The liver has understood through, again, through this regulation of genetic switches and enzyme systems, just how much it needs to produce to appease the brain, to make, to keep the brain happy, doesn't need to provide them for the muscles. So when people are doing like long distance uh, endurance activities now and are keto training and keto adapted and taking, now they're taking ketone supplements. I don't yeah. know if you've seen um, my buddy, Michael Brandt has HVMN. Yeah, I had him on the show. A lot, Michael, of, a lot of guys are, are using this. Um, that only works if you're keto adapted, yes. but it really works really well if you're keto adapted. Yeah. So this goes back to the um, uh, Tim Noakes, who was the mm -hmm. uh, sort of godfather of uh, carbohydrate loading and carbohydrate uh, manipulation back in the 80s and 90s, wrote the book called The, the Lore of Running, a 900-page tome on training for long-distance running, largely on how to, um, um, how to use carbohydrates to fuel the brain. And he talked about this, the brain being the central governor. And so his theory, which became proven later on, which was that when you hit the wall in a, in a marathon, it's not because your legs run out of glycogen. Yes, the glycogen is low. It's because your brain runs out of glucose. And the brain is what's the, the, it's the central governor. It's telling you we can't do it anymore. So it's not, it's not a, a lack of glycose in the, in the muscles. It's a lack of glucose to the brain. If you become keto adapted and keto trained and fat adapted, a couple of things happen. First of all, you develop, uh, you can you can perform at a much higher level just using fats and not tap into those precious glycogen stores. Number two, if you become keto adapted, then the brain recognizes that there's if you're fueling the brain with ketones during an event, you don't get that thing. Oh, I better pull over the side of the road and take a nap. Mm -hmm. You don't hit the wall as easily. Now, if you add ketone supplements to that you've got a real cool, interesting new level of performance ahead of you. Yeah, I love that. So I, I use uh, Ketone IQ uh, and Lat Mansour and, and Michael are friends of mine. I do carnivore from time to time, uh, 30 days, 60 days, a couple times per year, Mark. Doing carnivore right now, I'm about 26 days in. What I've noticed is uh, every Sunday I play basketball at Miami Beach with uh, some of my friends used to join us, by the way. So we play basketball two or three hours. I play fasted. When I do it in a, when I'm doing carnivore, meaning my glycogen stores are very low, yeah. no carbohydrates essential, an hour and a half, two hours in, I tend to kind of hit that wall, even though I'm keto adapted and I got ketones going. But when I take some exogenous ketones before the basketball, I don't hit the wall. And that goes to your point. And it's an ad additional energy source that my body's using in combination with the ketones I'm producing endogenously. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. So one of the things about basketball is it's a glycolytic sport. So if you are, if you go into it fasted and carnivore, so you're basically, when you're carnivore, you're deep keto and fasted. Yeah. Um, you probably haven't built the, um, the glycogen stores up to max. 
I mean, what I would say in something like that is the night before your games, eat uh, two sweet potatoes yeah. with butter. I've done that, and it's helped. Yeah. And so then you fill your glycogen stores up. Yeah. And, and again, you haven't lost the ability to burn glycogen. You've just inc improved your ability to burn fat during the – like you're burning glycogen when you're sprinting down – you know, give me the ball, give me the ball, give me the ball, you know, but 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 when you're jogging back up after a point or something like that, that's all fat. And so you're, you know, you're using, again, that whatever substrate is called upon in that moment, mm -hmm. your body knows how to access it without wasting yeah, resources. It's a good tip. Sometimes I'll do the sweet potato. The only reason I'm not doing it now is because I'm doing an experiment with my carnivore where I, uh, I'm, I did lab work day one, did a stool test day one, I'm wearing a CGM. I know you're not a big fan of wearables. I'm looking at different heart rate variabilities, and I'm going to do the same test, all the same test again on day 30 or 40 yep. without changing carnivore. Like I want yeah, to yeah. make no, sure. That's good. That's, so good. that's the only reason. But yeah. Otherwise, no, I and, I, and I, again, I would say, because um, I, I play ultimate two Fr hours. You know, Fr frisbee, right? Ultimate yeah, frisbee, yeah. yeah. And it's a fast pace. It's faster than basketball. Mm. If, you, if you, you know. You play basketball? Um, I have. I'm not very good at it. Come join us. Sundays at 10 a.m. I can make the moves and I can get open. I can't make the shot. <laughs> so uh, uh, I can pass well, but I can't make the shot. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And I've had those, like, I, I will make a pre-game drink that is ketone, uh, ketone esters mm. and element. You know, yeah, the, yeah, big fan of elements. Yeah, you know, so which is, what's your favorite flavor? Uh, lime. Yeah, citrus lime. I like the watermelon, but the lime is good too. Yep. With uh, like, um, I, I I like it in um sparkling cold sparkling cold sparkling, sparkling, sparkling water. water. No, I'm telling you that is dude, it's amazing. No, right? that's that is the, the thirst quencher to beat all thirst. The only quenches. challenge is that when you when you pour the, the sparkling water in with it fizzes the, too much. Yeah, it fizzes too much. Yeah, so yeah. you got to take it slow, mix it. It's all right. It's all right. Water. It's all right. It's a it's an amazing. I, I'm surprised. I haven't seen them talk about it that much. I should yeah, talk to Rob and, and talk to Rob because it's it's Get an incredible here. thirst quencher, almost to the point of you drink maybe too much of it because it's. So, I actually did too much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was actually doing a couple packets a day, and I was yeah. getting like these heart palpitations. Yeah, 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 I was like, yeah. ah, I got to work out or exercise yeah. and sweat it out. Yeah. But you know, I want to talk about something that's interesting. You're a big proponent of walking. Yes. And I want to talk about your company, the yep. shoe company, and tie it into that. But I even heard you say you might be even writing a a new book yes. about the benefits of walking. Yes. Why, why, why do you love it so much? So it's something that, first of all, that everyone, we, we're born to walk. The body needs to move and we're designed to move. We're designed to be moving a lot. And uh, so that's sort of a given. Our ancestors spent millions of years walking uh, around the savanna or across the plains or, you know, up the mountains. We didn't run that much as contrary to recent lore, you know, even though there's a book called Born to Run, mm -hmm. um, most of the persistence hunters don't even run. They certainly don't run every day. They don't train to run. They don't run metronomically at six-minute miles. You know, they'll sprint a little bit, hide behind a tree, track the animal, uh, walk a little bit, jog a little bit, sprint, uh, and it becomes a two-hour uh, event. It's not the same as getting out and running for two hours. We weren't born to run. We we are able to run, and it's good that we're able to run. And I'm not saying people shouldn't run, except they sort of am. I'm saying that, like, <laughs> based on the population dynamics right now, 70% of people in this country are overweight. They shouldn't be running. They should not be running because it's it's it, it, it's so much more benefit to walking, and there's only a potential hazard in running for these people, a mm. potential injury, a potential... And look, I mean, people... You, you look at the starting line of the LA Marathon, and it's 40,000 people, and... 90% of them are overweight. Really? Most, most of them signed up to train as a weight loss program. And wow. running is the worst yeah. way to try and lose weight. Because when you run, if you haven't become fat adapted right. and if you don't run with a proper form, 
which is a four-foot, mid-foot uh, stride landing. If you're a heel striker, there's a lot of jarring. There's a lot of, uh, if you again, if you haven't learned to burn fats, then what you do is you, you, you burn off all your carbohydrate stores, and then you get hungry. Your body says, yeah. hey, I just burned yeah. off all my carbs. All my glycogen's gone. If we're going to do this again tomorrow... I need to refill. And, and you lose muscle. And you lose muscle. So it's ca- running is catabolic. It's It courts injury. And if you want to do it, I wrote a book on how to train for people who want to truly want to train and insist on it. It's called Primal Endurance. But for most people, walking is the single best thing you can do. I mean, yes, you li- absolutely lift weights, absolutely do some sprinting once in a while. And it doesn't have to be running sprinting. It could be sprinting on a assault bike or on mm-hmm. a Versa climber or on a whatever. Get your heart rate up there. But walking... If people could find it in their lifestyles to walk 45 minutes to an hour a day, five days a week, everyone would start to regain a renewed sense of health, of balance, of equilibrium, you know, metabolic efficiency is part of that whole uh, plan of metabolic efficiency. Just 45 minutes to 60 minutes a day. I mean, I do, today I did uh, an hour and 20. And, you know, and I, it's multitasking. I'm on the phone the whole time. I'm walking briskly. I'm, I'm making business calls. I wear my new shoes, and I'll I'll talk about those. You know, ideally, we'd walk barefoot Mm -hmm. because we were born barefoot. I mean, we're not born with with devices on our hands. We use our hands every day. Well, the feet are the same. It's just that we have to accommodate our feet in this world that consists of pavement and concrete and glass and uh, tile and marble and hardwood floors. And everywhere you go, there's a surface that's uh, not good necessarily for, for foot comfort or foot health. So we need shoes, but uh, over the past thirty or forty years, I've been just really disappointed at the at the amount of uh, shoes that have been put on the market with in the interest of comfort or foot health that do the exact opposite. So I would say that one one of the worst things you can wear is a cushion shoe, a thick cushion shoe. Um, we're supposed to feel the ground underneath us every time we we te- our our foot lands. Our feet, the bottoms of our feet are supposed to inform our brain of exactly how to bend the ankle, how to bend the knee, how to twist the hip, how to torque, how to, how to flex every muscle to absorb the shock of that, that one footfall. Multiply that times, you know, 10,000 or 20,000 times a day. When we put on these thick, restrictive cushion shoes, we bypass all of that information. And so all of the forces start from the ankle and the knee and the hip, and the body doesn't know how to mm. how to manipulate, how to adjust, how to accommodate the landing of that foot. That's a big issue. Number two, most of the footwear we wear today scrunches the big toe yeah. and the little toe together. Yeah. And even though you might buy a wide foot, you might go get you know a double E shoe, it still scrunches the toes together at the front. Yeah. So toes have to splay. They're supposed to splay. They're supposed to articulate up and down. And the only way to do this is with a five-toed shoe. Now, there's been uh, attempts at five-toed shoes in the past. I don't think they look very good. I don't think they were they, – they accommodated most people who wanted to walk long distance. Like, I wanted a shoe I could wear and walk on concrete for an hour and a half and not feel like my back hurt or not right. feel like my knees hurt yeah. or, or feel like I was getting a bone bruise on the bottom of my feet. I wanted a shoe that felt like you're walking barefoot on a putting green. So that's the amount of cushioning we put in in these shoes. They're called Paluva, P-E-L-U-V-A, Paluva. They're a five-toed shoe. Yes, you can example. see them right yeah. there. And, they actually um, pretty, look pretty dope. Yeah, I, I, I like the style of yeah, it. Yeah, thanks. I mean, we make them in, we make them in uh, this is a, a trainer, but... Um, I got to get a pair of uh, size 11, Mark. Like, okay. I like these. We'll fix you up. Yeah. Um, but they, uh, they allow the foot to land appropriately. 
Um, you can feel every surface you walk on. So if you walk on pebbles or you walk on hard on hard rocks, it feels like a massage. So I love hiking on rocky trails with these. And I've got, uh, we have thousands of people using the shoes now, and I get feedback from a lot of people, a lot of trail runners who are hiking in these for the same reason. It's when you wear a hiking boot and the sole is this thick oh, yeah. and it's and the whole thing is stiff, Awful. the torque that's on your ankles or on your knee every time you misstep on a rock, it's really bad. So these have application. I mean, people are wearing them in the gym doing for leg days because you want to you want the yep you want to be able to feel the ground, feel the earth underneath you. Grab when you're doing lunges or squats or leg presses or deadlifts. I walk backwards on a treadmill, so you push off mm. with the toes. Yeah. If you've followed any of Ben Patrick's work. Yeah, that's how I knee, learned it. Knees over toes guy. Yeah. You know, they're amazing for that. So now we, we make uh, a leather lace-up pair for work, so you can wear them to, in a, in a formal setting. I go. I went to a black tie event the other night with my black. And you wore them. Yep. And, and I got awesome. tons of compliments. I like, love like, it. These look, look great, and they look great with the, the suit that I had on. You know, we've got a, a like a, a loafer-style slip-on just for kicking around. Because we feel that not only should you wear these, not only will you want to wear these once you've tried them a couple of times and you, and you experience this toe freedom, but now then you'll want to choose in, in, in different iterations so you can always have those. Because one of the problems with me was I got so used to this toe freedom, this, this um, toe articulation and being able to feel the ground underneath me. And it was just, it changes your life in terms of your, your connection with earth, you know, that I, I wanted to... I couldn't put on my regular shoes ever again, you know, and I have friends who are in the shoe business, you know, the guys at on are <laughs> like, I, I, I've known them, you know, and, and, uh, the guys at Reebok and the guys at Nike and the guys, I was a Nike runner for a long time. I can't wear the shoes anymore. Mm. They're too, it, my feet feel too cramped because I know now what it's like to be using the small muscles of my feet. So when I play ultimate Frisbee, for instance, I wear these and I'm running on grass, football fields that are not well kept up that have gopher holes and chuck holes yeah. in them you know knock wood in in 15 years of wearing minimalist shoes with five toes i haven't turned an ankle mm. because the second my foot lands on an uneven surface the brain already knows how to account for that it's almost like if you think about like if you woke up in the middle of the night and you walked across a dark living room carpet that was strewn with Legos and you're barefoot walking across. And you got to make it across to answer the telephone. But your brain, every time you step, your brain knows exactly how to like accommodate that based on the surface. So this is what we're reintroducing to the world. It's a new way of looking at foot health. I think foot health is the new sleep. Mm. You know, I think people have ignored foot health for so long. 78% of people cl complain of foot problems in their lifetime. Half the people wow. have to get some form of accommodation, whether it's orthotics or surgery, bunion surgery or plantar fasciitis yeah. issues. And it doesn't have to be that way. Your foot should be as healthy as every other appendage and organ on your body. But we get so caught up in the fashion and trying to, you know, fit them into these, you know, restrictive cases that don't allow the toes to move and articulate, cut off the blood flow. One of the more recent studies on plantar fasciitis suggests that when the big toe can't move out, can't abduct away from the foot and is always scrunched in, it cuts off the blood flow to the mm -hmm. arch and that creates plantar fasciosis. So what they call plantar fasciitis, which is an inflammation, isn't really an isis, it's an osis, it's a death of tissue. 
and it's caused by a lack of circulation. So one of the Jeez. easy things to do is is walk barefoot in in your house or around. Wear toe separators yeah. and get get the toes. Yoga toes, right? Yoga toes. A lot of people are doing that. Yeah, I've done so what that. we have is shoes that do the same thing as yoga toes, except you wear them day all day, day long, yeah. and and as every every step you take, you're passively training your feet. You know, that's why I love walking now because I know that every step I take, I've got a. I can feel my toes landing. I can feel each toe articulating and moving off. I push off the big toe, so that my feet are getting stronger without me having to uh, be concerned about uh, the stress of, say, running. So, you know, yeah, your feet can get stronger running, but not if they're encased in these shoes yeah. that are not allowing. So so people will get running shoes and they'll like, they get injured because they're not using the muscles in their feet. They're just sort of clomping yeah. on these pillows. That's happened to me with basketball shoes yeah. before. The high tops, they, yep. they don't work well for me. Can I use those for basketball too? So um, I, I would say absolutely. I, you know, you got to train in them. Yeah. But right. I've got ex-NBA guys who are playing scrimmages in these. Mm. Um, I've got an ex-NBA guy just tangentially who's playing pickleball in these mm. because he can move. He can get from one area of the of the court. He's nimble. It's because, again, this is all about midfoot striking. This is about being on the balls of your feet yeah. and using your feet that way rather than clomping down with a with a heel strike. Mm. Maybe, yeah. maybe it'll ele elevate my game, too. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, speaking of elevating your game. Yeah. So my son is 5'10". He can jump an inch and a half higher. He can dunk better with the Paluvas on really? than he can with basketball shoes. An inch and a half yes, higher. Yes, yes, yeah. Because, Ooh. no, I'll who would have thought? Well, who would have thought? Because you've got cushioning in most of the basketball shoes now. Yeah. You've got some cushioning. So if you think about what it takes to get, to get it, as you're coming in to plant for a jump to dunk, as you plant, you're dampening, you know, all of your is three G-forces, 10 G-forces going down into the cushion of the shoe, which is reducing the spring that's going to coil back up and Makes get sense. you to the top. So if you get rid of that, yeah. now you're just using the coil in your arch and your Achilles to, to jump, which is what you should be doing. But you don't put that shock absorption in mm. there that reduces the height. That's interesting. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll be another test subject for you okay, with yeah. my basketball yeah. game. Yeah. If you watch any of my videos on social media, you always see me with glasses on. And I always get the question, hey, why are you wearing those glasses? These are called blue light blocking glasses. And I wear them to protect my brain and my focus. You see, we are bombarded with stimulation, especially with junk light from your computer screen, your phone, fluorescent lights, and the brain has to filter that out. These glasses, what they do is they filter out those lights for you so your brain does not have to do the work. I equate this to having a web browser open with 100 tabs. If you had 100 tabs open on your computer, that computer is going to run slow. But if you were able to eliminate 99 of those 100 tabs and now you just have one tab open, that computer will function better. This is the same thing with your brain. So there's different types of blue light blocking glasses. There are computer glasses that you would wear during the day when working with screens and under artificial light. There are light sensitivity glasses that you would also wear during the day with screens and artificial light. And then you have the blue light blocking glasses, which I wear at night, two to three hours before I go to bed, which promotes hormone health, helps your body produce melatonin, and aids in better sleep. My go-to is from Bon Charge. They have the science to back it up. They look super cool. The glasses come in non-prescription, prescription, and reading options. Glasses for every need. Bon Charge also has other amazing products such as low blue light bulbs, red light therapy devices, 
EMF slash 5G protection and 100% blackout sleep mask that I take with me when I travel all the time. The greatest thing about them, all backed up by science. They gave Keto Camp Podcast listeners a 15% off coupon code. All you need to do is head over to bondcharge.com slash ketocamp and use the coupon code ketocamp at checkout, no space in between, to get 15% off your entire order. We'll drop that link down below along with the coupon code. Go check them out and let's get back to this episode. And it's interesting. A lot of people, when I play basketball, they're wearing these high tops. And I've I've never been a I've never been a fan of the high tops. It restricts your mobility in your ankles. So I've always wore low tops, but I've never wore these type of shoes for for basketball. The bottom of it, what is the what is it made of? Is it is are you still able to ground and get the benefits of grounding? Or so is it... so there are very few shoes that allow you to ground. I know it has grounding, to be like 100 leather, right? Either 100 leather or or metal. It has to be some metal coil or some metal spring. Very and metal difficult. wears down and becomes yeah. you know horrible on hardwood floors. And I've seen a couple of. Uh, I mean, we're working on it, right? I'm I'm Clint Ober who has the, yeah I've had him know, on the show right. So Clint. Uh, you know, I'm working with him to see if we can cool. if we can do something like that. But it's not the primary reason for what Correct. we do. It'd be another added benefit. So what we have is we have um, strategically placed. This is uh, you know rubber outsole with great cool. grip, very thin, and then three millimeters of EVA cushioning insole. Actually, a little bit more than three. And then we've got you know, and then the rest of the shoe, which is the you know the bottom of the sole in, inside. So it's a total of nine millimeters from your heel to the surface of the ground, less than one centimeter. So that's, when you're talking about minimalist shoes, that fits the metric of wide, thin, flat, flexible. So these have no drop. In other words, the, the heel is not lifted. The heel is the same height as the midfoot and the toe. And they're flexible. I could take these off and twist them and bend mm-hmm. them because you want you want to feel every surface. That's that part about feeling, you know, if I walk on a cobblestone road in Europe. It, it's like amazing. I love it. Every, like every step is different. Like a massage. And every, and every step you go, okay, I'm building the strength in my feet with every step. And I'm not, because I'm not doing heavy weights, I'm doing, you know, 10,000 repetitions of a light weight, but it's right. still building those muscles. So it's, and then the upper, I think, you know, we created an upper that is, I think, much more attractive than the other alternatives in the five-toed you know, shoe space. They're not attractive. They are. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I wore those for uh, other ones for 12 years and I was yeah. a, a big ambassador and they were, you know, they were under, under, on the right track, but it was um, kind of, you know, bad execution, kind of like Atkins and keto, right? Mm, yeah. Had the right idea, but the execution was kind of correct. Faulty. Good comparison. So, yeah. Um, Paluva.com. Is that where they can Paluva.com. Yeah. Yeah. We'll put that in the notes down below. You'll see me rocking mine very, very soon. I have a question on biohacking. And I know I love your perspective on biohacking. Like your goal is not to live to 140, 160. Like you just want to live awesome and feel awesome, right? Right. But biohacking, like keto, there's there's pros and cons and longevity. And so many people violate the principle of hormesis. When we talk about cold exposure, sauna, exercise, fasting, I mean... Like ketosis, they think more ketones are better. They think yep. more of it is better. And you even have a story about getting sick from your cold plunge, right? So I'd love for you to talk about the value of understanding hormesis and why you don't want to violate your hermetic zone. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the body wants to conserve energy. The body doesn't want to change. It's just, it's it's the nature of entropy. It's the nature of life on the planet, which for for most of history, resources were scarce, 
you didn't want to, as an organism, you didn't want to waste energy. Um, you wanted to conserve just long enough to pass the genetic material along to the next generation. So all life really is about passing the genes along to the next generation. So in terms of us as humans trying to outsmart the you know, nature, we would say, well, while the body doesn't want to expend energy, I'd like to build some muscle mass. I'd like to look good at the beach. I'd like to look good naked. I'd like to live longer. So I know that muscle mass is an important uh, aspect of that. So I'm going to do some things in the gym that are going to be destructive at a microscopic level, but will prompt my body to repair itself and become even stronger. So it is the Nietzsche, you know, if it doesn't kill me, it makes me stronger mm -hmm. kind of thing. So hormesis is, the, the, the concept of hormesis is you, you do something to the body to prompt a change and hopefully prompt a positive change. So, you know, if you go in the sauna with the hormesis, the hormetic effect is heat shock protein. If you go in a, a um, cold plunge, it's brown fat activation, it's anti-inflammatory in nature. You know, there are so many, uh, if you do a sprint on the track, it is a uh, short-term stress that generates um, blood markers that prompt the body to respond by building stronger, faster muscles. So hormesis is a good thing in the context of time and uh, sort of a ratio of time and, and stress. And are, if are, you, are you adapting to the stress? And are you adapting to the stress? Well, what's happening, what, what has happened like with the biohacking community and cold plunge in particular, you know, there's a lot of research on cold plunging and how it reduces inflammation. Um, okay, but let's talk about that. So if it reduces inflammation... Wouldn't that make sense that after a workout, mm. I would want to reduce inflammation and, and take a cold plunge? Yeah, it would make sense. It would make sense, and it doesn't work that way because no. you, the hormetic effect of a workout is to get inflamed, to, to cause inflammation, and then to have the body respond in time with the appropriate amount of rest, the appropriate amount of nutrients over time to build back a little bit stronger. So with regard to cold plunging, um, the hormetic effect could be, you know, again, activation of, of uh, brown fat. It could be anti-inflammatory if you haven't worked out that day. Mm -hmm. so or, or before a workout. Or before a workout. There's, there's, so there's context yeah. to how you introduce all these things. And, and I was, you know, I, I was doing cold plunging back in Malibu in my unheated pool, you know, 15 years ago. I didn't know it at the time. I was just uh, undergoing a personal experiment because I had been an Ironman triathlete and I, I didn't like swimming and I hated swimming. And I mostly hated swimming because the water was so cold. And I mostly hated water that was cold because it was an 81 degree public pool. And I would get into it and go, ooh, you know. 81 degrees? Whatever, it was just, <laughs> it, I found that to be uncomfortable. And I said, I gotta get over this. So I trained myself to be able to walk into a 48 degree pool at, you know, 9.30 at night when it's 45 degrees air temperature out and I'm buck naked and walk into the water and have it be okay and hang out there for a couple of minutes and then get in the jacuzzi and hang out. And my wife would join me in the jacuzzi part of it yeah, yeah. And, then, and then go to bed. So for me, initially it was a mind game. It was just a head trip. Like I just was training myself to overcome that irrational fear I had of, of cold water. Like I would tell myself my mantra, and this is how I coach other people when you walk in, it's not good or bad. It's just a sensation. It's not good or bad. It's just a sensation. So 
Anyway, I, I got past that. So then cold plunging becomes a thing, and I start. I, I have a cold plunge from the plunge people. And Me too. Oh, same thing. Yeah, they're great. It's he an was, amazing I just device. Had Ryan here. It's an yeah. amazing device, and I love it, and I use it. It's at my house in Pacific Palisades in California. It's oh on, yeah, it's not here. No, it's, you, you could use mine. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but what happened was, I was coaching so many people on how to do a cold plunge, and then I get used to it, so I'm good at four minutes or five minutes in certain temperatures. And then, and then somebody come up to me a week later and say, hey, thanks for the advice, Mark. I've been doing this. I'm doing six minutes. How much are you doing now? And I'm like, dude, that's just not, this is not a measuring contest. This is <laughs> this is a hormetic experience. And I got to the point a couple of times where I'd, 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 let me just see what I can do. You know, and I do 11 minutes when three would have been good. And I'm like, okay, I can do it, but I got sick. Doing yeah. It. Back to the running thing. Just because we can do it mm -hmm. doesn't mean we should do it. Just because we can run a marathon doesn't mean we should do a marathon. Just, we, just because we can survive 11 minutes in a cold environment doesn't mean we should. So for most people, two to three minutes of discomfort in a cold plunge is more than adequate to create the hormetic effect that you want for that event. And anything beyond that just becomes, again, it's it just, it, it, it can get out of hand. And I've seen it get out of hand with saunas. I've seen people, Me too. you know, pass out after too much time in a sauna or get sick after a sauna. They're violating hormesis. Yeah. And so it's, look, we talk about, you know, poison being not so much, I forget what the quote is, but it's more the dose the than dose. it is the, 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 the actual substance itself, mm -hmm. right? And so with a lot of these things, you know, I was one of the top marathoners in the country uh, in the late 70s. And I remember one day I was preparing for the New York uh, City Marathon and I was ready to run 214. I was in the best shape of my life. I was I was wow. crushing it. And I went to the track and I did 16, no, 14 halves in like 222 to 223. And about the last, with two to go, I'm like, I'm starting to feel a little bad. I'm getting a chill down the back of my, mm. I did two more. Mm. And it and it it basically was the end of my career. Wow. Because I I was coming off of a 120 mile week. I was I was so full of myself and thinking that, you know, more is better. And if I just can do these other two, I'll I'll have completed the workout. So what I turned what should have been an amazing workout if I'd stopped at 10 of those repeats and would have been a great hormetic effect to a a, a bad stressor with the extra six that I did. So I see this happening a lot and I have to be careful of it myself every once in a while. I still, I still get caught up in, like I, I like uh, riding a fat bike on the beach, but I go out at, in the heat of the day, right? I go out, it's 11 o'clock in the morning and I go out and it might be, you know, 87 degrees and no wind and I'm going to ride for an hour and 40 minutes, right? So um, I have to be careful that I don't overdo that stuff because it is the nature. Everything you do in the, in the context of improving whether it's lifting weights or doing sprints or cold plunge or or heat or yoga or it, fasting everything fasting yeah. it is a horm it's a stress and it, it and a hormetic stress it disrupts hormesis it disrupts you know sort of the status quo in the interest and with the goal of creating a ratchet up in in fitness or adaptation yeah, well said. I, I'm I'm so with you on that, Mark. One of the things I teach my students is when they do a cold exposure or a sauna or some sort of hormetic stress, I ask them, how did you feel the rest of the day? Yeah. And if they tell me I actually felt wiped out, I got sick, 
Uh, my energy levels dropped. My sleep was bad that night. Uh, they did too much. They yeah. violated hormesis. But if they told me they felt incredible, like I felt more energized, I felt vibrant, they found a good sweet spot. Yeah. So for cold plunging, for example, I think you, you said getting to a two to three minute at a good temperature. But would you recommend probably starting like at 15 seconds, oh, 30 yeah, seconds? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then no, building no. away up. No, no, no. For, for yeah. most people, yeah, I would say uh, there are a lot of people that I encounter who... I don't, I don't know how you do that, Mark. And how can you possibly like, and they'll jump in and mm. they'll run out. Like yeah. they'll jump in and they'll almost jump out, towel off and go, you know, whatever. And I'm like, okay, let's start with, with 10 seconds with you. And yeah, so they'll exactly. do 10 seconds and then I'll say, okay, you know, one more today, just one more, go back in the sauna, just whatever. And then we'll do 30. And I want you to count the 30. I want you to wa watch the, the second hands of the clock or watch the digital output and get to 30. See if you can get to 30. Invariably, they'll get to 45. Mm, yeah, um, there you go. You know what I mean? So th those kind of goals. And then, and then I'll say, okay, that was 45. So now you know you can do 45. So now every time you come in, try for another 15 seconds. I love it. That's a great, so that's a great principle right there. For, you got to build it up, not just with the cold plunge, but even other hormetic stressors, right? Fasting is like a muscle. You build it up as well. Yeah. Uh, I want to wrap this conversation up with two quick things. I love your books. What I love about the most about your books, and it's interesting because your books are about, of course, nutrition and fasting and lifestyle, but my favorite thing is not even that. It's the mindset part you put into your books. You talk about Bruce Lipton. You talk about the effects of your thoughts creating yeah. protein. I, that is my jam right there. How important is it to create what I call this mental six-pack where, of course, we want to eat good foods, but we want to also feed our mind great thoughts. How right. important is that piece of the no, puzzle? That's really important. Again, I go back to how do I feel, right? And, and if I feel good, I'm going to generate more of those positive thoughts. Um, if I'm feeling bad or I'm feeling depressed or I looked at my aura ring and despite the fact that I thought I got a lot, a lot of sleep last night, it's telling me I didn't. That's why you don't like it because you don't want a device telling you how you should feel? Bad data is worse than no data. <laughs> and again, aura rings, they've, you know, they've, they've done a great job and I don't want to, I don't want to yeah, no, any of the yeah. horrible. Where, I mean, I, I have a device I wear right now, the uh, fourth frontier. It's a portable EKG monitor because I have heart issues from being a runner for so long. And so I'm, I'm fat, but it, it gives me an actual EKG readout, like good data. What is it called? Um, fourth Frontier. Okay. Yep. Frontier X is the name of the device, but it's, uh, you know, it, I can download my entire workout onto their site 30 seconds after I finish my workout really? and, look, and go to, and look at every single heartbeat in an hour and a half workout and, and look at the P wave, the R wave, the RQ. Really? Yeah, yeah. That's it, fascinating. Yeah. And it tells me my breathing rate. And it tells me my HRV and, and uh, my strain in millivolts. What so is your uh, average HRV? It really varies because, I, and I don't even pay attention to our HRV that much. So this device will show me between 30 and 60. But that's during the day when you're that's active. during the actual yeah, workout. Got it, and yeah. I don't wear it uh, outside. So another example of uh, bad data, so uh, an HRV. Um, I, was, I was looking at HRV early on thinking, well, that's kind of interesting because it, you know, it, it looks at the heart and the sympathetic parasympathetic mm -hmm. uh, connection and whether or not the heart's beating metronomically. And yet I have a condition that I've brought on from 30 years of overtraining and working my heart to a, to a pulp, uh, PVCs, premature ventricular mm -hmm. contraction. So if, if I'm in a certain zone, I'll skip every third beat. And so it looks amazing on the HRV yeah, thing. It's like, whoa, this is your, you know, your variability is incredible. I'm like, 
well, not really. Uh, that's, I wouldn't look at that. And if yeah. it tells me I should go out and train based on that today, I might die. Yeah, right. So bad data is worse than no data. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Although I, I do love HRV for most people. You're the exception there. Yeah, I yeah. do think it's a good gauge. Yeah, but. yeah. No. So again, it's, what I teach is is intuition. I teach people how to be intuitive. Love it. So that's because that's what I do. I'm not suggesting, I'm not trying to get you off of your wearables, but I'm saying I would love for you to be intuitive so that at some point you could throw that CGM away and go, I learned what I learned from my two weeks of the CGM. I never need to wear it again because I learned what I learned, right? And there's no new information to be gathered. I know when I'm eating pad. I know when I'm going to raise my glucose. And I know that rice is good for me, but, you know, uh, potatoes aren't or whatever. Yep. You get those learnings and then you should be able to go through your life without being called upon to go, oh, yeah, I look that up in uh, Tony <laughs> Robbins' book, or I got to look that up in Peter Atiyah's book. Like, what does this mean? Uh, no, it's just, it, how do you feel? That's really- I love it. That's really my my, my jam. I love that, Mark. You mentioned uh, you, you might be writing a new book, or let's confirm, yeah, are you yeah, going to write yeah, a new book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's official? Yeah. What's the timeline for no, that? Um, it'll probably- six months, now more than six months. Okay. I'm very excited about it. It's some, some cool information. Oh, I can't wait for that. Yeah. We'll bring you back for round two. All right, cool. Uh, yeah. I'll have your shoes by then too. Yeah. yeah. Share a little bit about your health coaching certification. There's a lot of people who watch and listen who want to become a health coach and there's a lot of options out there. So share a yeah, little yeah. about yours. So uh, I have the uh, Primal Health Coach Institute. We've been around for now almost eight years and uh, wow. we've, we've certified 3,000 coaches. We've had about 5,000 people enroll, and it's a tough course. I mean, it is a legit course. People who have had MDs take it, uh, nurses, physicians, assistants, uh, dentists, chiropractors take it. But then, of course, a lot of personal trainers, a lot of people who are just interested in participating in healthcare. And we've identified that health coaching is probably one of the most ripe areas for opportunity for people with what's going on in the world, and particularly in this country with with medic, medical care, the way it is and how it's falling apart. So it's a um, it's an online, uh, self-paced online learning experience. It's very robust. I mean, it's, it's, it is not easy. And once you get your certification, you can coach people. We, we have a modules, several modules on how to build a coaching business, mm-hmm. how to get hired by a medical practice to be their coach, J- not just the science. Initially, this started with, I wanted people to be able to understand what I know, like for me to download yeah. what I know so that you can understand it. So it started out as just a self-learning certificate. Like, I just want to know what you know, Mark. And then enough people said, oh my God, this is, we should be bringing this out to the world. So it's called the Primal Health Coach Institute. And uh, you can uh, Google us. It's, you know, we're online and we've got tons of information on what we do and, and so many different programs within the certification. Uh, you know, reading blood work, uh, women only certifications mm. with certificates within the the master program. I love how custom yeah. is it? Custom it yeah. is. Go check that out. It's so important. You're right. There is going to be a rise even more so than now of health coaches and the yeah. need for coaches, really good coaches. Yeah. Love how it's so custom. Final question as we wrap this up, Mark and land the plane together. I talk a lot about my favorite supplement. It's called vitamin G gratitude and being in a grateful state. It's the gateway to the heart. So I want to ask you, what are you grateful for today? I mean, I'm always grateful for my health. I just, I, I marvel at how healthy and robust I am at my age and what I'm able to do and how I'm able to to uh, manifest that and explore the world. So when I go to Europe, I'm paddling in, uh, stand-up paddling in in the most amazing bays in the world. Uh, and when I'm, or I'm hiking on some of the most incredible hiking paths in the world. And most people can't do that, or, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people can't do that. So I'm, I'm always grateful for my, for, for my health and 
the um, amount of time I put into uh, educating myself. And part of that is like people would say, well, you know, but if you knew then what you know now, what would you do differently? And I'd say nothing. I mean, I made some horrible mistakes and I've got torn muscles in my, you know, hamstrings and and lats, and I've got all kinds of, I got a need, need a hip replacement, and I've got all kinds of crap going on. And I wouldn't change anything because I've dialed in a, a way of feeling good every day that makes me want to get out of bed and, and just, you know, go attack the world. It's very inspirational, Mark. It really is. I'm a 39-year-old man here, and I, I, insp- I inspire, I aspire to be like you when I'm older. I really do, with not just your knowledge, but your way of, your view of life, yeah. and the way you enjoy your family and your life. I really admire that. We all have Mark to thank for getting the seed oils out of these salad dressings and dips with Primal Kitchen. I mean, so much to credit to you right here for the health movement. But Mark, thank you so much for your time and energy today. We'll put your links and books and resources down below. And uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to finally interview you. You've been a huge inspiration. So thank you, Mark. Thank you, Ben. I hope you enjoyed that incredible conversation with the king of metabolic flexibility, Mark Sisson. If you want to watch the video version of today's interview in our studio, we have some great video content from that interview. Go to youtube.com slash ketocamp. If you want his pullover shoes, head over to the link in the podcast notes down below. Use the coupon code listed down below and get a nice discount. If you want to learn more about his health coaching certification, we'll put that down below. If you want to follow him on social media, we'll put his resources down below along with his books to get his books as well. Go show him some love. Go uh, share this episode with a friend as well. And if you have not left the Keto Camp Podcast a rating or a review yet, please do so. We would really appreciate it. Before we sign off, I forgot to mention uh, during the intro, I am going to be hosting a free toxicity masterclass this Friday, November 10th where I'm going to take a deep dive into four secrets to detox. And I'm going to identify the four biggest toxins creating the most cell inflammation, what to do about them. And there's going to be a special opportunity at the end as well. So the masterclass is free. All you need to do is go to toxinsmasterclass.com or use or click the link in the podcast notes down below. All right, Keto Camper, I got vitamin G for you. I'll see you in the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.